I'm Michael Beck, the host of the Mike the Mike podcast. If you've been following along with me, it's great to have you back here again. And if you're listening in for the first time, welcome. This is a place to talk about the arts as well as personal well-being. Sometimes I'll talk more about art, while other times I'll talk more about mental and physical health. But regardless of the topic, I hope to encourage greater openness and understanding as I seek to better understand myself and the things and people around me. There have been a number of things that I've been interested in and thinking about for some time now. Some of these things since last year, and in my mind, a few of them seem to have culminated together in a rather intriguing way in more recent events. So I wanted to try and take this opportunity to finally talk about some of these things. While in the past I may have thought to do an episode going in depth on one particular topic, I am now, for the sake of time, going to be trying to broach and touch on a couple of subjects here simultaneously. As I've been writing this script, history keeps moving forward as it does, and the story continues to unfold. I'm trying not to be long-winded. Uh, there will undoubtedly be details and events that I've missed. There's no way that I can cover everything, and I shouldn't attempt to try to cover everything in one episode. I think, if anything, there's an opportunity to come back to the topic with subsequent episodes. It would be much more manageable for me as I do run the risk of dragging the development of this episode on indefinitely. And I imagine that multiple episodes versus cramming everything into one would be much better for the listener as well. With that, uh, per usual, this is not going to be a particularly research heavy. I will try to reference and cite a couple of sources here and there, but if this is a topic that's of interest to you and you would like to know more uh, or fact check uh, what I've shared, uh, I encourage you to do so um, and to do a bit of your own research. Ultimately, this will be my attempt at trying to process a bit of the current state of affairs as I see them for the common people, the common folk within the United States. I think perhaps the best way for me to go about this is roughly chronologically in the order that things seem to occur, or at least were brought to my attention. With that, uh, what I will be touching on in this episode will roughly be as follows. However, don't mold me to this exact order. This is not a table of contents. I will be jumping around here and there to try and bring my thoughts together. Uh, but here is a rough approximation of the topics that I will be touching on. AI technology within the area of art and creativity, the writer and actor's strike, then unions in America, followed by the great resignation, quote-unquote, as some have come to call it. Now, with uh, the introduction and all of those disclaimers out of the way, let's get into the episode. Around the end of last year, conversations were blowing up online about the latest advancements and implementations of AI technology such as OpenAI and Stable Diffusion, the open source image generator. As I stated, I'm trying not to get into the weeds here, but to recap, as you may recall, artists were beginning to speak out, saying that these data sets, these data gathering engines, such as Stable Diffusion, were being trained, they are pooling, they are mining a great swath of information from the internet with virtually unlimited access. They are taking and using data from artists, no less, without consent and without being mentioned, no credit given. However, as with most news, those conversations began to fizzle out and most people moved on to talk about other things, or rather the media moved on to other things. I feel that the mood for most people after the fact has been well reflected in the PC Gamer article with the headline, AI art isn't going away. 
allow me to briefly read from that. Despite ethical problems, AI image generators and other machine learning applications won't be willed away. The internet did a commendable job of mocking NFTs to death, or at least into remission. Big game developers like Ubisoft, who initially showed interest, have mercifully stopped bringing them up. And now some hope that the make-it-so-uncool-no-one-will-touch-it tact can be used to stun another trend, the rapidly advancing AI image generators spilling out flattering fake portraits of our friends and stills from imaginary David Lynch Warhammer films. I think they'll be disappointed. AI art, quote-unquote, isn't going anywhere. So like the article stated, for most the conclusion seemed to have been, despite ethical problems, AI art isn't going away. Despite ethical problems or no, AI art isn't going anywhere. AI art isn't going anywhere, so we will just have to wait and see, and what happens, happens. And for most of us, it's like, yeah, what can you do? I will say this much about my thoughts and perspective of AI and the arts. I feel like the closest comparable innovation that we've had within more recent years that can be compared with what we are experiencing or might expect to see with AI is social media. When social media first came onto the scene, I'm sure there must have been conversations about it with people on all sides, with people who were apathetic about it, thinking that it had no effect on their life, those who were excited about what it has to offer, the untapped possibilities, and of course people who were wary of it. And could anyone have predicted the vast scope of influence of social media on our lives today for better or worse? As I mentioned in a previous episode, J.R.R. Tolkien has been quoted to have said, evil cannot create anything new, they can only corrupt and ruin what good forces have invented or made. This idea that evil is the corruption of good has stuck with me. I also consider that perhaps there are things which are seemingly neutral, not inherently good or evil, but uh, that can be used for good or ill, to bring greater joy and freedom, or for greed and to hold greater power over others. I feel like in these instances with the introduction of a new technology, a hardware or software, a new device or application, what have you, I speculate that people tend to fall within one of three camps. One, people who are all in, they're all for it with no breaks and no reservations. They're excited and they're here for whatever is happening and whatever is coming. Second, there are those who don't really care. Frankly, they're just kind of tired of hearing about it. And in their mind, they feel like there are more pressing and or at least more interesting things to be focused on. And lastly, you have the folks who say that it's the devil, it's evil, it's bad news, and they don't want to have anything to do with it, and they believe that it must be stopped. But hear me out, I believe that most people are more complex than this and likely hold mixed and conflicting thoughts, and so don't fit fully or completely into one of these three camps, but I feel that in terms of the overarching theme or prevailing ideas and legislation does in my mind fit within one of these three moods, which I find quite problematic. I will try to explain. I know that oftentimes we can speak about social media in a disparaging way, or at least I think about it in a disparaging way more often than not, and this is because it seems to me to be a double-edged sword, that it's as bad as it is good, and that it can seem to hold more power over us than we have over it. But the good is there, and this is one of those times that I'm reminded not to be mistaken about that. 
it's an amazing thing to be able to connect with people from all over the world, which you would never otherwise be able to make contact with. It also feels like an incredible thing to find that across geography and culture that you can find people with shared things in common. It feels like it's never been more accessible to find your niche group with others who are into the same very particular things that you're into. But there are also things which can and often do get in the way of us being able to take full advantage of its potential. Never before have people been so bombarded with information and from more directions than ever being flooded with messages trying to sell us on products and ideas. And when they're not trying to sell us on something, they're trying to sell us with our data and our personal information. And it just feels like a lot. It can and does take away from our time outside of the social media platforms. And while you're using it, you can't see and find the things that you want to see and are looking to find because we're all too often being fed what the platform, the algorithm, wants us to see. It doesn't matter that you have 2,000 things that you're following or subscribed to. They want us to look at and spend the majority of our time looking at the 100 things that they want us to see. And look, I get it. Most of these platforms are free, meaning the users don't pay with their dollars, so the organizations have to make their money through other means. Every business, big or small, needs to be able to turn a profit. They have to have money and make money to keep the platform running, to pay their bills and to pay the other workers and employees to pay their bills as well. But it feels to me that things have gotten out of hand for some time now because things have been left virtually unquestioned and unchecked. As long as things are running and there was money to go around, it feels to me like there was little to no foresight into how social media could be managed and how we could hold these platforms and those who run them accountable to think about the users beyond their own invested self-interest, or more specifically, for the CEOs to think about their employees and their users beyond their own invested self-interest. And I guess that's the through line or the common theme of my general sentiments that I'll keep coming back to. It feels to me like things have gotten way out of hand with these organizations and the CEOs who run them getting out of line under the banner of freedom and democracy, having been left virtually unchecked. In my mind, this is from my perspective. It is big business that built America, and it is big business that runs America now. It is big business that has the power through its money and influence to make things go their way. And their way is not merely to turn the necessary profit, but to push the limits so that they can make as much money as possible. It has been said by Robert Reich that the CEO to worker pay ratio in 1965 was 20 to 1. The CEO to worker pay ratio in 1989 was 61 to 1. And the CEO to worker pay ratio today is 399 to 1. Corporate and CEOs refuse to stop consolidating wealth and power. This is why thousands of workers across industries are striking or planning to strike. To summarize, he says, workers have every right to strike for better wages and benefits. CEO is skyrocketing. Worker productivity grew 3.9 times as much as worker pay between 1979 and 2021. It's time for those profits to trickle down to the workers who generate them, don't you think?
I, for one, agree, and it seems clear to me that there are many people who have taken notice, likely those who have taken notice long before I have, and don't need statistics in order to tell that there's a problem because they're living it. They know that there are very real problems, and we are now seeing those who are trying to take action and in doing so, I believe, are further bringing clarity to the situation and revealing the character of the individuals who are running these businesses and calling the shots. During the writer and actor strike at Universal Studios, the company cut back, or rather butchered, quote-unquote, a row of trees which were providing cover and shade from the summer heat. In one article, it was said, Streets LA has informed us that they are issuing a citation in the amount of $250 first-time offense to Universal Studios. The citation alleges a violation of trimming trees without a permit. Outdated laws limit penalties the city can issue. Regardless of outdated laws and penalties, I shared this to bring attention to the fact that it was found that uh, it was not the city that cut back these trees. No, this was a decision that came down from Universal. This was a response that came down from Universal in retaliation to the striking workers. Please don't take my word for it. I encourage you to look this up yourself. I remember a friend telling me that they heard about the trees getting trimmed back, and when I actually saw some photos, it just hit differently. I have left one article about this incident in the episode's description. Now, beyond what's going on with writers and actors, I should mention that I've actually heard of a number of strikes being performed by workers of Amazon, UPS, Waffle House, and so on. So I do feel like it can be difficult to find and keep track of all that's been happening. I wouldn't have mentioned this without seeing a video myself of a person showing some construction that was conveniently being done in the very location where they were on strike and this was forcing some people back into the street. However, when I looked this up, I wasn't finding anyone else talking about it. I speculate that if any other media source mentioned the strike, it would be about how the people on strike are causing a public disturbance. I say this because I did, however, find several unrelated articles talking about the threats and the dangers of other workers' strikes for businesses and for the larger American economy, which I believe is telling of something. I'll leave it at that, at least for the time being. I believe that the media has done a great job of vilifying unions. In my mind, just as AI isn't inherently good or bad, just as with social media, and the same is also true for unions. Perhaps at one point in time, it was argued that unions were left unchecked and were getting out of hand, so the United States government intervened. It sounds like, from what a friend shared with me from their readings, it uh, seems that, at the very least, in the past, unions were not inclusive in terms of race and gender. So while some may have reaped the benefits, uh, this was not the case for those excluded, and I consider this no small thing. But again, I'm going back to the idea that unions are either a good thing that's been corrupted, or a neutral thing which has been managed and run by the wrong people. But since then, it feels like, to me, that unions have been virtually obliterated out of existence here in America. And without them, workers have no forms of recourse. Again, this is America. We're about freedom, democracy, and capitalism. Which means, in my mind, that the government is going to be the last thing that intervenes, if they ever intervene at all. 
I believe that we need unions holding space between businesses and government in order to keep businesses in check and to ensure that the workers in America are being treated fairly, treated like human beings. And if they're not, then they have the support that they need in order to have some leverage to make their voices heard. In interviews and other various resources, I've heard stories of actors, in particular, recollecting about the levels of exploitation that would take place in the past behind set, especially with younger, less seasoned actors. And they would say something to the effect of, that would never happen now. With unions, there are more regulations in place to make sure that actors have safe working conditions, are treated fairly, and are being compensated fairly for their work. I'll be getting back to these ideas shortly, but for now, I'll just say that once again, both writers and actors with the backing and support of their unions are going on strike and they are depriving CEOs of their labor until they come back to the table to negotiate. And I believe that it's been made crystal clear that without unions, there is no negotiation. There's no negotiating with CEOs because not only can they not be bothered, but they will go to seemingly any lengths to ensure that no one can interfere with their investments and their interests, actively putting their employees, our fellow human beings' lives, at risk. They would rather you and I undergo physical and mental anguish well beyond any reasonable explanation in order that they can ensure that investors are happy and that they can grow their net worth by a percentage. And I believe that for many CEOs, it seems that once you start earning a certain amount of money, it's not even about the money anymore, about earning enough to live well and happily. For them, there can never be enough money. It will never be enough because it becomes a matter of how much money can you make. And you can't stop and you can't quit because the answer is that there can always be more. And when you're dealing with people who only care about their money, they will never slow down. They will never stop until you can apply enough pressure where it hurts their wallets. Now, I guess I want to say here off the script that it's and I, the implication is there, but it's not just about the money, but it's about the power that comes along with that money. Uh, but I digress. If you made it this far, I trust that this conversation has been of some value to you. If my assumption is not incorrect and you would like to show your appreciation, I invite you to share this episode with a friend or a loved one you think might appreciate it as well. Virtually any way that you can interact with the podcast, rather be to like and or comment on my posts or to share it or save it, all these seemingly small things can help to support my work. And if you have the means and would like to show your appreciation through a donation, or like to buy me a coffee, you're welcome to visit mikethemike.wordpress.com forward slash support. You can find this on my website in the episode description, as well as in the link in my bio of my Instagram. All right, now back to the episode. Now, before I continue on any further, you may still be asking yourself from earlier, what cause was there for the decline of unions in America? I'm still asking this question myself. If unions are so needed and as important as I believe them to be, what happened to unions? Why have we seen such a decline in unions? Like most things, there's not one simple answer, but multiple factors to be considered, according to research done by Vox Media. With their YouTube video, The Fall and Rise question mark of unions in the US, they try to explore this question. Answering big questions like this usually involves answering a bunch of smaller questions. 
Following the questions that they posed and the answers that they arrived at, they were left with these key findings or observations that they believe account for the fall of unions in America. The first bullet point is growth and change in labor market. And the idea here is union density did decline in other countries too, not only in America. Some of this decline followed international trends as economies grew over time and expanded with globalization, which resulted in businesses becoming less centralized in sectors like domestic factories, where union membership was high as job growth was steered instead towards other sectors like the now booming service industry. However, this doesn't give the full story and doesn't account for the fact that we in the U.S. have even lower union membership than other similar countries such as Canada. Their next bullet point is post-war union complacency. So they found that in the intermediate post-war period, there, among the majority of Americans, was the belief that capitalism works. Businesses were booming, and generally people were doing well, or at the very least seemed very optimistic about the future. In the words of Joni Mitchell, doesn't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? During that period of economic growth following World War II, unions negotiated some really modest wages and benefits. Much of this was in the building trades and manufacturing. However, at the time, the typical worker was viewed as a white male out of Midwest manufacturing. There was sexism involved with the idea that there wasn't any need to organize retail clerks into a union, or in other words, sectors that were thought to be dominated by women who were just there for side money to spend on luxuries and, and essentials. So apart from a sort of complacency among American workers that came about at this time, there was also problems within the union movement, which hindered further growth. Their last bullet point was intense employer resistance. During the 1970s, there was massive inflation, a spike in unemployment, imports were cutting into industrial profits, and employers responded to these pressures with an anti-union assault, quote-unquote. They moved factories to the south to avoid union labor, there was an increase in companies hiring anti-union consulting firms, and they permanently replaced striking workers. And this strategy was further bolstered in 1981 from Ronald Reagan upon firing 11,000 striking workers from the union representing those who manned America's aircraft traffic control facilities. Technically, federal employees weren't allowed to strike, but up until this point, this had never been enforced before. This was the first time that the federal government had been behind the destruction of a union in many decades, and this sent a signal to every manager in the country that they could now do things that they couldn't do before. And now lastly, a sub-point underneath intense employer resistance is enabled by labor laws. Now, I'm not going to walk through the U.S. government policies that have made it hard to unionize, nor am I going to go into the process that members have to go through in order to form a union as covered by Vox's video. I encourage you to go watch the video if you want more. However, I will summarize by saying that there are a lot of steps that prospective union members have to go through in order to unionize. Each of these steps in the process adds up to more and more time and creates plenty of opportunities for delays. In Canada, the window of time for each step is significantly reduced by comparison with what is allowed by laws here in the U.S. And in addition, in most parts of Canada, if you don't have an established contract by the end of the year, the negotiations get referred to an arbitrator who can then impose an agreement. The fact that this is the endpoint for the majority of systems in Canada completely shifts the incentive structure. 
Again, compared with the US, wherein the delayed time, supervisors can legally pull workers into mandatory captive audience meetings in which they are advised to vote no, not in favor of unionizing. Firing workers for organizing is not legal. However, if an employer is caught retaliating against an organizer in the US, they merely have to promise not to do it again, reinstate the worker, and award back pay minus whatever wages they had earned from other employers that they had sought. So it's not even the full amount they would have earned if they were on the job. And meanwhile, the employer sends a message to all of the workers that this is what happens if you try to unionize, and they get to continue to engage in an anti-union campaign without a key leader or leaders in place. So it makes no sense for employers to obey the law. So ultimately, U.S. labor policy has limited the tactics that unions can use, while making it easier for the management of companies to employ anti-labor tactics. At the time of writing this script, it had been a few short months ago that I started seeing posts come on my Instagram feed from comedian Adam Conover's Instagram account talking about the writer strike. I don't follow this man, but I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. And even now, I still don't follow this man, but as I alluded to when I talked earlier about the shortcomings of social media, amongst other ads, rather than seeing things shared by the hundreds of people who I actually follow, I continue to see things shared via his account but I digress. Through his account and some others that I've been seeing, I've continued to see news about the writer's strike. In addition, I've also been seeing that actors are now joining them in what is now a historic event, as this is the first time since the 1960s that both these two groups, WGA, Writers Guild of America, and SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, have both been on strike together simultaneously. Both actors as well as writers are feeling the burden of how they are being treated by their employers and, moreover, how they are quite literally losing their jobs or otherwise having their wages significantly reduced. Again, going back to AI, conversations about AI blew up at one point, and since then most of us have been waiting to see when and what would happen. The time is now and things are happening. And to be clear, again, this is not my view that this is a problem with AI technology, but with the companies using it. When SAG announced their strike this year, the union's chief negotiator, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, revealed that Hollywood Studios made a proposal, or rather had made a contract, that they would get to own an actor's AI replica without paying them another dime. Here is what SAG Chief Duncan said in his own words. But this groundbreaking AI proposal that they gave us yesterday they propose that our background performers should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of attorney in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. So if you think that's a groundbreaking proposal, I suggest you think again. And while speaking on a podcast, Adam Conover shared yet another example. Here is what Adam shared. AI is and we really should call this like imitation technology, because that's the main thing that it does. It imitates stuff that's being inputted. It is hurting actors right now. There's a case where Apple made AI narrators for audiobooks actually a pretty good use case for that kind of technology because, you know, like someone might want to listen to an audiobook where not enough people want to listen to the audiobook where it's worthwhile to record, right? However, what they were doing was they were taking the AI voice prints of real actors, real voice actors, 
and making it without telling them, because there was a clause in their contract that allowed their voices to be used in that way. And these were SAG-AFRA actors. I think they might be litigating about it now, but, like, that is literally stealing work from them. Now with writers, at least at this time, I haven't heard anything so alarming in terms of AI, but regardless, they too have still been facing a plight at the hands of CEOs, in which the people running these companies are making more and more money while the writers, those who are creating the products that they would be nothing without, can't even afford to live. In a nutshell, as I understand it, what concerns WGA writers is this. The business has shifted with the introduction and now prevalence of streaming services, which writers are getting paid less upfront because they're given less and less time in the writer's room. They're also making less money after the fact through residuals, which is a term used for getting paid each time the show is aired, something which historically writers have counted on. They are now no longer receiving those checks. They, the writers, get paid once, streaming services make all the money that they do, and no matter how many times audiences binge watch their work over and over, they will not get to see the watch numbers for those platforms, and they will not get paid anymore regardless of how popular how much of a mass success it is, and no matter how much money it generates for the streaming service. Now, what I'm most fascinated about the exploitation in Hollywood that the writers and actors are exposing in my mind is that it so perfectly mirrors the very same exploitation and mistreatment which so many of us have experienced and continue to experience in the workplace and virtually every other sector. It's not just Hollywood. This kind of thing that studio executives are trying to pull, these kind of stunts, are not at all unlike what we are seeing across other industries throughout America. So apart from my concern for my fellow man, selfishly, I feel an invested interest in the success of these protests because I believe that their success or failure says something about the kind of success or failure, the kind of progress, the change that the rest of us can come to anticipate in our own industries, at our own jobs as well. Not that the success of WGA and SAG will ever necessarily equate one-to-one -one for the rest of us, but I feel like if they can't do it, then no one can, you know? In my mind, this is so much bigger than just Hollywood. These guys, the CEOs running these companies and making these kinds of proposals are bad news. AI is not bad news, nor is social media or any other foreseeable technology advancements. It's the people who use them and abuse them, corrupting them to the detriment and suffering of others. And so I firmly believe that we need to have regulations and checks on these things, not because they are evil, but because they're people who will use them for evil purposes if given the opportunity. Again, as I touched on earlier, it seems to me that far too often if individuals take issue with an organization and attempt to express their grievances, the blame shifts onto those individuals. It's like large-scale gaslighting. During the pandemic around 2020 and on, there were news headlines with what media outlets were referring to as the Great Resignation, as it seems as though people in droves were quitting and leaving their jobs. Meanwhile, other companies were also laying off people in droves from their jobs. So while there was a lack of work in some areas, in others, particularly in places such as the food and service industry, it seemed like businesses couldn't get enough help to keep their businesses running. And so an age-old idea cropped back up once again and began floating around that people don't want to work anymore. Some have had a mind to direct this accusation at younger people, specifically those of the Gen Z demographic. The youngest generation always makes an easy scapegoat, it seems. 
I'm sure that those of the millennial generation can remember back like it was only yesterday how we were seemingly the cause of everything that was wrong with society. A good friend of mine brought to my attention the fact that this kind of top-down perspective from older generations has been occurring throughout time. Even as far back as the time of the ancient Greeks, Socrates is thought to have said, The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love of chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before a company, gobble up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. Perhaps apart from some outdated language and customs, doesn't this sound like something you've heard your elders say as a blanket statement about your generation? Now I'll share a short related clip from another Adam, Adam Best. A brief history of nobody wants to work anymore. A thread. 2022. Nobody wants to work. 2014. What has happened to the work ethic in America? 2006. It almost seems like nobody wants to work anymore. 1999. 1981. 1979. Nobody wants to work anymore. Disgruntled businessman. 1969. Nobody wants to work anymore. 1952. 1940. Nobody wants to work anymore. 1937. Nobody wants to work anymore. 1922. 1916. 1905, 1894. Nobody wants to work anymore. Uh, when you put things into historical perspective and you present it in such a way, it sounds so absurd that I don't know how you could listen to that and not laugh. It's clear that regardless of age, regardless of the generation that's being accused, the notion that people don't want to work anymore has been making headlines throughout the centuries. I believe that this kills any validity that the statement has ever been true at any period in time. So if we ever hear someone utter these words, we can call BS. And if we should ever feel tempted to agree with them and repeat these words ourselves, I hope that we can remember a little bit of history and instead ask ourselves, what else is really going on? Carl A. Rodriguez shared a post, which I believe drives several points home. He says this, You cannot love your neighbor while supporting or accepting systems that crush, exploit, and dehumanize them. You cannot love your neighbor while accepting less for them and their families than you do for you and your own. And here's one last and final clip for this episode, which I believe speaks to these sentiments in more practical terms. This is uh, from another comedian, uh, Brennan Lee Mulligan. Apparently I'm showcasing comedians in this episode, but I think it should go without saying that comedians by nature of what they do are largely very observant people that have a manner of wisdom to share. I think like, again, generally speaking, if you're looking for someone to make earnest and insightful social commentary, then you can't do much better than comedians. I remember a guy being like, you know, like you're working in a coffee shop somewhere and, you know, like you got to think like that's not a that's not a career. You got to do that. And I remember talking to the guy and being like, so do you think no one should work in a coffee shop? And he was like, I wouldn't. And I was like. But I'm asking you, do you think coffee no. shops shouldn't exist? And he was like, no, I love coffee. And I was like, so you're bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you see that, that you are saying it should exist and the if you want it to exist, you should want it to be that anyone who works there, because again, we're agreeing it's good and necessary. Yeah. Coffee shops are actually better than what you do. It's yeah. better yeah. to pour a cup of coffee than whatever fucking thing yeah. you do all day, <laughs> right? That's a nice, cool thing to do that's good to do is to make a good cup of coffee. <laughs> So someone doing that should live in 
dignity and comfort and safety, right? We all <laughs> think that is true. Yeah. And like the idea that he was like, no, it should exist and it should hurt and be bad to do it. So in that clip, Brennan shared his belief that coffee shop workers deserve dignity, comfort, and safety. It's my belief that these sentiments apply or should apply to every worker. At the end of the day, I believe this is so much of what the conversation boils down to. There seems to be this notion, this prevailing idea that to work under safe conditions, to be treated with dignity, and to earn enough money in order to live safely and comfortably is largely unrealistic, but for the privileged few. And the idea that there are jobs that should exist and it should hurt and be bad to do it, it's like, can we pause and take a moment to think about what we're saying and the implications? I don't know the person that Brennan was talking to. It seems pretty clear in his clip that he's pretty fired up and passionate about uh, this as, as he should be. However, I'm personally not choosing to speak disparagingly about people who I don't know. Like the fact that Brennan's conclusion, in his words, based upon the beliefs and the ideas that the particular individual was sharing is, you're bad. And I'm just like, are they actually a bad person at their core, or are they just terribly misguided with really bad ideas? Like these are people in our community, they may even be our neighbors, and I want to believe that people can have a change of heart. I want to believe that there's hope for us yet to change things around. You know, not that, not that it's just all about the people who are in the know and have the right idea, but that the people who, you know, have had these misguided ideas can, you know, see the light. <laughs> I, I really want to try and resist the urge to simply ride people off as bad, as evil at their core. Again, going back to Tolkien, for nothing is evil in the beginning, even Sauron was not so. I realized that I had been calling people bad news earlier, and it's a statement that I believe is still accurate, and I don't uh, you know, now disagree with uh, that, but I don't want anyone to get me wrong. Clearly they have done and are doing bad things, really terrible things, but I'm not trying to imply that I think that they're so bad that they're somehow beyond hope. I can only hope that even stupid rich and corrupt CEOs can have a change of heart to hold themselves accountable and take responsibility for their actions and the damage that they've caused. I'm not holding my breath, but I hope. But my point being, rather than starting a witch hunt, rather than going after and attacking people, I'm wondering, can we agree and come to a general consensus that these ideas are bad? And can we instead wrestle with and go to war with these beliefs and ideas? These ideas are a poison that are creating a toxic environment for everyone involved. I can only imagine what someone who holds these ideas thinks of themselves and the standards by which they live by. They may be very prideful and think that they've earned what they've got, but underneath there must be a person that learned that their value and their worth is based upon what they do and the size of their paycheck, that they have a conflated sense of self-worth that is defined only by the external that they must maintain with every fiber of their being, because without their title, without their material items, and their symbols of status, that they would have nothing. They would be nothing. I believe this is a very sad world to live in. I wish for everyone that they would know that they are beautifully and wonderfully made. 
that we would possess a sense of inner security and confidence that rather than working hard purely on survival instinct and a desire to avoid pain, that our wellness, our mental well-being, that is our knowledge of our own worth and that of those around us, would drive us to work hard and be at our own personal best, would compel us to do good work towards making the world a better place. One cup of coffee at a time even, if that is the work that we're proficient at and find meaningful. There are subjects and topics that I found myself avoiding talking about here on the podcast because, to me, they honestly feel pretty hopeless. So many times I've been tempted to talk at length about the economy in America, about our healthcare system, the general cost of living with a lack of affordable housing, and so on. There's so much going on that I see now that I'm, I'm like, this is absolutely awful. How can we possibly allow this? And at the same time, I see little to no way out of it because it feels like not only is there so little being done about it, but it feels like as time goes on, things have only continued to get worse and still I don't see any solutions or ways forward. I don't find it productive or interesting to rant and carry on about issues and problems without also offering some semblance of hope or ideas of how we might progress and move forward together. So the fact that I am choosing to speak on the writer and actor's strike means that I do see at least some sliver of hope and a way forward, however naive and idealistic it might be. But where things go from here feels like anyone's guess. Could the video game industry, which is still a very young, relatively new industry, but which is already bigger than the film industry, follow in the footsteps of Hollywood with writers and actors to organize into unions? I decided to title this episode my Labor Day special as a bit of a tongue-in-cheek um, jab at businesses. I've been reminded that Labor Day is not about corporations holding yet another sales promotion to expand their profits at their employees' expense. It's about the right of labor workers, of all workers. This is what I believe. The nonprofit media source More Perfect Union, which seeks to build power for working people, made a post on Labor Day with this message. It's been a hot labor year. This Labor Day workers across the country have a lot to celebrate and reflect on. Through eight design graphics, they shared a number of those things, uh, then finally concluded with these words. So don't forget the reason for the season, and happy Labor Day. I believe that workers in America do have a lot to celebrate and reflect on, to include but not limited to Hollywood writers and actors going on strike and standing in solidarity with one another. If you would like to see uh, more of the things which More Perfect Union listed, you can find that in the script uh, for the episode that I have shared on my blog. All right, with that, I'm going to end the conversation here for now. Thank you so much, as always, for joining me to consider and contemplate these things with me. Until next time, stay well and take care. Thank you for tuning in to Mike the Mike. If you have any comments or have a suggested topic for a future episode, or if you would like to inquire about joining me on the podcast, you can email me at beckm.podcast at gmail.com, or you can direct message me on Instagram at mikethemike.fm. You can find all those addresses mentioned, as well as any related links and citations for this episode listed in the episode's description.